and welcome once again to Center Left Radio, the progressive voice of hope, politics, and jazz. My name is Richard Gazer, and as always, I am pleased and I'm honored to be your host and your commentator for another of our commentary shows. One of the shows that we have up on air and online, accurately stated as such, uh, 24-7, here at www.centerlefttalkradio, one word, centerlefttalkradio.com. You pick us up uh, when you go to that particular web address. The, the two links that you'll see there, the first is our podcast feed with a podcast of what you're listening to right now at the top of that feed. However, uh, cleverly, I have named it by then. Uh, the next link down, uh, down uh, is the radio loop the uh, appropriately named radio loop because it in essence is uh, the equivalent, the, uh, the, the emotional and psychological quasi-analog equivalent uh, of turning on a radio and picking up the same show wherever it happens to be in the show, getting interested, doing what you did back in the day, uh, enjoying it, hopefully staying with it. And if you're interested enough picking it up again uh, from the beginning because it'll start from the top literally two or three seconds after it ends. So hence a loop, hence radio, uh, but still accomplished through absolutely digital means. You have to click a link. You have to do those things that remind us when we are living, uh, not just remembering uh, where we've been, but where knowing where we are. Um, which, which uh, is an interesting thought, uh, especially in light of uh, where we were, uh, where, where, where Joe Biden was yesterday and, and how he got there and, and, and how it's sort of rejiggered a whole bunch of reactions literally worldwide. President Biden yesterday, and I, I think by now, well, certainly, all right, it's the, it's the 21st of February. You wouldn't have known this at this time yesterday morning. The information was still breaking. Um, Kiev being, and Poland being, I think, six hours ahead of the United States. So um, at some point during the, I guess it would have been on the, uh, the day before, this being now, this is Tuesday, so was it early Monday? I, I'm, I'm losing track of what time it was where. In any event, Joe Biden landed somewhere around the Polish border, the, the Polish border with Ukraine, and took a 10-hour train ride from a, uh, un, uh, a station that apparently was not regularly used or took it to a station that was not regularly used in Ukraine and found his way to the presidential palace where he had a meeting, a very public meeting, with President Zelensky of Poland, uh, reaffirmed America and NATO's commitment to stay the course with Ukraine, and left the same way he came in. Now, everything about his trip was extremely secretive. 
No one knew about it outside of a very small group of people, I'm sure, uh, within the administration. Certainly the Congress or the Senate did not. Well, maybe a few people knew, but it wasn't common knowledge simply because, well, you just can't trust uh, certain elements within the American Congress. God knows who would have said what to make what point to basically try to screw things up because no matter what you do, all that matters is that you do something bad to Joe because Joe is bad and, and he's just a lib and we can do anything we want and we hate him and you know, whatever, whatever. You, you, know the, you, the, you know all the, the BS that goes with that. Um, he got out the same way he got in. And amazingly, amazingly, uh, the information that he was in the country was supplied through, I gather, one of the only remaining channels we have, regularly operating diplomatic channels. The Russians knew he was going in and would be coming out and knew how he would be doing it. And we're told, keep your hands off. And they did. Now, it's easy to hear this now. And, and uh, to just sort of imagine, I, I imagine one way of, 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 of processing the fact that the, the first American president since the American Civil War just made a trip onto uh, enemy territory, uh, as it were, uh, or, or, or went into a, no, let, let me put this correctly, went into a war zone where American troop presence did not exist, much less a troop presence that was the predominant force in the region. In other words, the American, an American president went where he was literally about as vulnerable as an American president can possibly be. Now, we do everything on earth to protect our presidents, certainly in this country, certainly when they travel anywhere in the world. This is an American president who went into a country where the standard protections that are, are expected weren't there. Now, how, how, how do you process that? I, I imagine uh, one way would be to say, well, he was never really in that much danger if he was uh, you know, he, he just wouldn't have gone. No way he would have gone in there. That's one obvious process. And, and I imagine there will be a lot of people in this country who, through whatever, however they manage to get, someone will say that in some source that they are, you know, that they access regularly. And they'll adopt that. He was never really in danger. That'll be a storyline for this. Uh, another storyline will be it's the dumbest, stupidest thing that an American president could have ever done. He put himself unnecessarily at risk and basically uh, uh, could have created an international incident and it accomplished nothing. It changed nothing. What's that, that story will get out there. There will be the story that the Biden administration is presenting to the world, and I think a very plausible one. Uh, on the one hand, Biden becomes one of the last Western leaders 
to visit Zelensky on his own turf and to pledge uh, continuing support. But he, and he does it now, he does it on, on the American President's Day, uh, makes a real statement about that. Uh, it makes it a lot more a lot more real than just money and and bullets being tossed at Ukraine. It it, it puts a personal uh, a personal face in in a way that Joe Biden is very good at doing on the entire process. It um, I as I watched him, and you you saw nothing but you know wall to wall footage about this after a while. Yeah, you, you see an 80-year-old guy. Yeah, you, you see the gate, not what it was 10 years ago or perhaps even five years ago. But you also see a guy who's absolutely, totally focused and committed and convinced, absolutely convinced of the righteousness of his position. This is not... And, and, and this is where it's going to get really tricky for a lot of people to absorb this. This is where the real, where the real fault lines happen, certainly in this country. It wasn't a political stunt at its core. It may have accomplished a political purpose, but it wasn't a stunt for the sake of a stunt. It really had no great upside on the American side of things, it, yes, it showed that he had the guts to do something that no other American president has done in 150 years, 70 years, I don't know, some, some rather large number. Not that the presidency or the effectiveness of a presidency should be judged by whether or not an American president went into a war zone with minimal protection. I mean, that really shouldn't have to be uh, a, a, uh, uh, a statement of, of, of the effectiveness of a presidency. But there is the unavoidable comparison to be made with the, I wouldn't call it the other bookend of this situation, but, but the last major interaction between the former President Donald and, and uh, Ukraine and Zelensky, uh, to wit, uh, Donald essentially uh, trying to uh, uh, maneuver to, uh, to basically dupe Zelensky into uh, uh, opening up a, a, a criminal, some kind, or just even make a statement to the effect. Gee, that's all I really want you to do, Vladimir. Just say that you're investigating Joe and or his son. And, 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 and that's all I need. And then I'll release to you the money that Congress has already um, you know, authorize for weaponry that you need to protect yourself uh, in against the Russians. Okay, that was a Congress that was uh, operating under Donald. These, this was a House and a Senate that Donald had. Donald had both at the time. Okay, and they and they had voted, and Donald had okayed this money going to Ukraine. 
So the notion that there was a sense that none of this was real or that Donald didn't even recognize it as being real really wasn't in play. It was, it was budgeted, it was spent, it was permitted, it was going to go over, and Donald suddenly realized that he had an opportunity to, to basically further one of the conspiracy theories that he had been furthering about why he didn't really lose, uh, you know, or, or no, this is prior to the election, obviously. Why, uh, why who was doing what to basically uh, uh, attack him? This is pre-election now, keep in mind. And uh, got himself impeached the first time. Got himself impeached for basically doing something so so garishly, ridiculously illegal against the rules, the norms, and everything else. Defied congressional authority. Defied everyone and everything. Everybody knew on both sides of the aisle that it was a complete and utter. Uh, uh, abdication of responsibility, abdication of the of the of, or misuse of the authority of the presidency. Donald was once again dealing with the presidency as he always did, <coughs> as he'd always viewed it as an acquired asset to be leveraged when it was of advantage to him personally. Screw the country. That that's what was happening. Got himself impeached. Predictably, of course, you could not get enough Republican senators to vote with the Democrats to get them the hell out. You, you, you couldn't do it. Uh, they just were afraid. Everyone knew the arguments. Everyone knew what the guy did and yet would bold-facedly said, well, no, we can't, we can't go beyond this. That's one one point of connection with Ukraine and one way of dealing with it by an American president. Embarrassingly to have to say that. But yes, Donald actually was an elected, a legally elected American president. Uh, you know, we can argue uh, all sorts of things about Russian uh, assistance, but we'll never be able to prove conclusively that it was Russian assistance and things that were done by General Flynn and others uh, that basically made the ultimate difference. I, uh, this is not the forum for getting back into that. Hillary made mistakes during that campaign, fine and dandy. She won by three million votes, but lost the election electorally. That's how we do things in this country. Fast forward to yesterday. And Joe Biden is there with Zelensky and reaffirming America's commitment. And I speaking on behalf, well, obviously trying to re-rally or, or reconfirm the, the strength of NATO behind the commitment being made. And, and, and the notion, again, and here, and, here go, and here go all of these different points of view, all of these different silos of thought, uh, you, may, there, you may have gotten through whatever social media source or other sources you have, your particular perception of Ukraine might be that it's none of our damn business, it's, 
something internal. I mean, aren't the Ukrainians pretty much Russians anyway? Uh, they basically, uh, it's an internal thing between Russia and Ukraine. We have no business being involved in this one way or the other. Let Putin go ahead and do whatever the hell he's going to do to them, and that'll keep them happy, and we just go on and life continues. One point of view. Another point of view, um, Putin has a right, has a right to basically expand outward somewhat. And, and he'll only, only take the Donbass and he'll only take Crimea and it'll, and it'll end there. It'll end there. And by the way, the Minsk Accords, you know, we, we have the Minsk Accords, don't we? The, the Min, and I, I, I've heard this in, in a number of conversations with people I know. And, well, if only the Ukrainians had followed the Minsk Accords, there'd be, everything would be fine. And, well, the, the hard thing to recognize for people who keep pointing to the Minsk Accords is that no one ever really followed the Minsk Accords. They were, they, were, they were broken almost within hours of being signed, and, that, and by both sides, that there was additional hostilities all over the place. There were two variations of the Minsk Accords, not, neither of which ever really, really held together. It was an idea, it was a thought, and neither side basically believed what they were signing or was there really an intent to go forward with it. So the, the, the Minsk Accord argument, as far as I'm concerned, is a red herring. They're, they're, they were on paper. That's about it. And yes, according to those Minsk Accords, there would be, well, there'd be cessation of hostilities by the Russians by the Russians that were within the uh, claimed Ukrainian territories, and the Ukrainians would stop fighting, blah, blah, blah. Well, no one, again, no one, no one bothered. So, okay, but that's another, another argument that I run across uh, regularly. Well, not regularly, but from some people, because wherever they get their information, that's the thing that, uh, that keeps getting thrown up at them and reminds them that this is all the Ukrainians' fault. Of course, there's another argument that says that the Ukrainians really still are a bunch of real-life neo-Nazis. Now you're getting into pure Russian propaganda, essentially, that they are a... they're somehow looking to resurrect the Nazi regime, and this is all about bringing back... I don't know... Ancient Nazis, dead Nazis, brand new, reminted Nazis somehow secretly with brown shirts and all ready to come in and start marching through the streets. I, I, I don't even know where that one comes from. Yes, there was, there, there was some, um, some brigade or other that the Ukrainians had that was said to have had a connection at some point in the past with 
with neo-Nazi. Uh, there, there, there are all these storylines that somehow support the notion that the Ukrainians are deeply rooted Nazis, real, live, current-day, operatively uh, vibrant Nazis, and that's what this is all about. They're trying to revive Nazism in, 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 in Eastern Europe under the guise of a Jewish president to basically make it all happen for them. Somehow, it just doesn't work. It, 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 there, there's no real... It, it fits into a conspiracy silo very, very neatly, very compactly. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It just... It doesn't. We watched... And, and, and again, people, the, the argument now, this is, this is pure Russian propaganda. If you listen to Putin's, uh, uh, his, his annual state of, the, state of the State, well, State of the Nation, I, I think, is, is his uh, speech yesterday. A 90-minute ramble. And again, I don't speak Russian. I don't understand Russian. I've only been getting excerpts. Uh, and the excerpts from that speech essentially said they started it, the Ukrainians started it, the Americans and the, East and the Western Europeans are continuing it because they have a absolute master aggressive plan to take over and dismantle Russia and bring Russia to the ground. We are fighting. This is an existential battle for Russians. We are fighting for our very existence. That essentially is, in essence, what he was saying. Uh, not talking about the fact that uh, a year ago he said he was, what Vladimir said, he was basically going to, uh, it would be a few days, we would take the whole thing, we'd be in Kiev. Um, oddly, uh, just about on the day of the anniversary of the whole thing, he's not in Kiev, Joe Biden is. Uh, that couldn't have been lost on, on Vladimir, but the, the Russian people are getting this constant story, and if what I'm hearing has any validity, it's sticking with a lot of people. That, that basically this is the, the next existential battle that the, uh, the former Soviet Union, current Russia, uh, but still destined to return to its former glory state under Vladimir, basically is, uh, is, is confronting. That, that we just can't get away from this... Um, this existential threat from the West. It's something that will constantly rise, et cetera, et cetera. So we can't back down. To back down basically is to be destroyed. The reality, of course, is that Vladimir Putin attacked Ukraine. He didn't have to send all the troops and he didn't have to bomb the cities. He didn't have to kill a lot of people. He didn't have to throw missiles uh, at, at, at apartment blocks. He didn't, he didn't have to basically chop out as much of the infrastructure as he possibly could. This, he wasn't compelled to do this. No one was coming at him in Russia. Yes, there was, there was conflict within the uh, the disputed territories that were the historical territories of Ukraine. That was going to go on one way or the other. That was supposed to be dealt with by the Minsk Accords, and it was never dealt with by either side. 
But the notion that that leaves us with no other option but to have to um, invade Ukraine, you, will, you can adopt that position if you feel, for whatever reason, you, you have been given information, you are oriented to the notion that Russia has been so aggrieved and Ukraine is so much of Russia, it so belongs to them, however you want to read history or anything else, that there's no choice. Well, the facts belie that. The Ukrainian people are not embracing Mother Russia. There is no rush to basically become Russia. There is no massive movement within Ukraine or the Russian-held territories, I gather, to make Russia as, to, to Russify all of Ukraine as rapidly as humanly possible because it's the only way we will ensure what we were destined to be, and it's Moscow's right to be able to do this. You're not getting that. The people of Ukraine just don't see it that way. What's more likely and is the obvious, what we see before our eyes, Russian aggression in, in the guise of some uh, expansionist uh, philosophy or retaking philosophy, greater glory of Russia, etc., etc. And this is what we're doing. This is what we have to do. Because our history and, 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 and just the nature of the world compels us to do this. And besides, it's the only way we're going to protect ourselves from the encroaching West. So by God, we damn well better deal with Ukraine. Because if we can't deal with Ukraine, well, then we're going to have ourselves invaded from every other border. And this is, this is where we put, this is, this is our a line in the sand, this is where we basically say it can't go. This is, this is a major theme, and it's out there, but it doesn't comport with reality. You have to keep leaping through uh, different portals of reality in order to make that one your, your reality, your truth set of choice. Now, now it gets a bit more interesting. And China, a year ago, in watching uh, Russia do what it was doing and wanting to maintain the strength of Russia mostly as an offset to American strength in NATO and everything, just, just an ongoing balancing exercise, China, over the course of the year, was giving lip service, but then, little by little, has been making a stronger and stronger, at least verbal, commitment to Russia. Now, they, like, like Russia, imagined that this was going to be a very, very quick event, that the Russians would get in, you'd find them in Kiev the next morning, you know, sort of Hitler, uh, Hitler touring Paris and, and admiring the Eiffel Tower sort of situation, and that would all happen in short order, and the balance of power, at least from China's perspective, would be appropriately maintained. Clearly, it hasn't worked that way. So China now finds itself in the odd situation Remember, Russia has lost, well, depending on, now again, depending on whose statistics you're, you're believing on this, the British intelligence has said 
that they've 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 had two hundred thousand casualties. Um, oh no, is it three 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 hundred thousand casualties, two hundred thousand deaths? It's it's in the hundreds of thousands. Let's let's say it's safe to say that the body count of Russian soldiers, this is their military, is a six-figure proposition. We know that uh, out of uh, out of uh, Pure, I don't know if the word is panic, but, but as the regular military... Oh, oh, there's another very important statistic. More than three-quarters of the entire Russian military ground force, men, and I don't know about equipment, but this is also from British intelligence, has been committed to the Ukrainian war, the Ukrainian front. In other words, they are the vast majority of their war-making capability, their, their conventional war-making capability, everything but nuclear weapons, has been thrown at Ukraine, and it hasn't done especially well. They weren't supposed to lose all those kids. They weren't supposed to have all those body bags coming home. They weren't supposed to have people questioning. The babushkas, the women... The older women, the, the mothers and the grandmothers, who basically are the, the, the mainstay of, of power for anyone in Russia, their faith in this, I'm sure, has been shaken any number of times. So that the lies and the notion of waving the red flag, basically, or whatever the color is flag, is the tricolor, the bicolor thing, whatever flies over Russia, the Russian Republic, that... That basically has been the only thing left for Putin to do because you can't really explain away all of those dead young kids and then all of the new conscripts that have come in and then all of the tens of thousands, estimates up to well over 100,000, highly trained, intelligent kids who would have been drafted had they not left the country. Brain drain starting as a result of a draft that basically would have affected people, uh, still people being thrown into the military, relatively untrained. These are the stories that you're hearing out there. They make sense. And depending on whose storyline you're taking, it's either major segments of the Russian economy or the entire Russian economy really taking a hit for this. Russians being forced to think of themselves as world, not world pariahs, I guess, depending on your point of view, but certainly now being marginalized. Any notion of being westernized or being absorbed into the greater world, gone. Putin doing everything in his power to un-westernize them. Western companies having all mostly fled, I gather. I, I was very surprised at one thing, though, that I've seen recently. Keir Smith, what's his name? There's a, there's a British reporter. Um, what's his name? Keir, I can't think of his, uh, somebody help me. Well, there's a British reporter who uh, you would see on, uh, he was working with NBC, and he was always standing on a particular spot on a major highway with the Kremlin in the background and doing reports from Moscow. And as the war began, Putin kicked out all the Western journalists. 
And so he was gone. Keir Smith, is that, is, is, is it Smith? Um, it'll come to me. Uh, and he, he's been gone for quite, suddenly he's back. He's, he's reporting live and he's saying things that are wide openly critical of Putin, wide openly critical. He is basically offering a, a, I think, a rational, reasonable view on what is going on. He was talking this morning, uh, it was afternoon, but uh, well, yeah, no, late morning, I guess, uh, in Russia, in Moscow, about what was going on with the Putin speech. He's there. It's live. I, I don't think it's a, uh, if, if it's a, if it's a blue screen or a green screen behind him, it's incredibly effective. He's there. I, that part I don't understand. I don't, I can't quite figure why they, Putin would allow a, a Western journalist with an obviously contrary point of view to be reporting in the same position he was reporting in prior to the war. It almost seems like an effort to normalize things. How much of that, how much of that reporting might somehow be available to the Russian people? I don't know. I don't know how they've reconfigured their internal electronics, how their, how their social media is uh, working. The Russians are a very, very sophisticated people when it comes to that. I'm sure anyone could get any information they want at any time, but there is a Western journalist uh, who had been expelled back giving his storyline this morning. That, that one I still got to sort of work out. Back to the Chinese, though. The Chinese are being asked, I gather, this is what many of the headlines are from different news sources, they're being asked now to uh, go beyond just whatever aid, I don't know if there was money, I don't know how they were handling this, probably not money, but they're being asked to now go ahead and start supplying weaponry to uh, the Russians. There is a lack of weaponry. The Russians are in need of additional weaponry. They have not been able to keep up with their demands, with demands for the Ukrainian front, quite understandably. Hell, the Americans, the, the amount of, 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 of uh, you know, missiles that we are putting out there, the, the heat-seeking missiles and everything that we've, we basically, there are reports out of America that our strategic stockpiles of this stuff are basically, I don't know, threatened, but certainly that we're getting into the area where we don't want to give out too much more because basically it could uh, leave us shorthanded uh, if there were to be another conflict, say with a China or uh, Iraq, Iran, or something where in the Middle East, or, you know, we've, we, we have all sorts of preparedness things going. But Russia is in a far more realistically difficult situation there. And they're asking China, we want weapons. Now, there was a story I caught, I don't know how true it is, that Ukraine, that uh, that the Russians had actually been receiving weaponry from North Korea. I don't know how true this was, I, and I have to question it. But that they didn't use a lot of it because the weaponry proved to be absolutely undependable. 
Was this true? Was this a silo that I found myself falling into? I don't know. But it's utterly and completely credible that they would be looking to the Chinese. Now, the Chinese are in this odd position. They want uh, a strong Russia to help balance, counterbalance the strength of the West. The Chinese have their own economic issues right now. They're, 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 they've had more of a disease state issue than other countries have had of late. They've had more of a COVID or COVID variant problem than most other countries have. We're not getting much information on how that works, but there have been lockdowns. There are few of them, fewer of them now. If they are to begin giving weaponry to the Russians to use against Ukraine. Well, what does that do to the relationship between China and the United States? Remember, there's a huge trading situation still between China and America. Can China continue that relationship if it suddenly becomes the supplier or the main, in many ways, it'll be almost a main supplier of arms to Russia. Can, can China maintain its own military preparedness if it finds itself doing this with Russia? Can China, though, on the other hand, afford to let Vladimir Putin lose this war? Well, whatever lose means. Does, does, lose mean, does lose mean physically have to back out of Ukraine completely? Does, you know, whatever, I, I imagine lose is whatever is, it takes to topple Putin from power. That would, be, that would be the ultimate statement of loss because he would not be able to maintain his power. He, he knows, and he knows from his speech yesterday, and anyone listening to it knows, that Putin will not, cannot afford to lose in that regard. He knows that if he were, if, if Russia walks out of this with less than it went in with, after now a year and probably another six months or a year or more than that, before somehow this all ends, he's a goner. He can't walk out with less than he walked in after so much blood and, and fortune and everything else will have been, have, have been shed and spent, and somehow he has to survive, yet he can't, he can't nuclearize this. Well, the Chinese know that he can't possibly. You cannot allow this to ramp up to nuke because it will begin a third world war. There'll be no way around this, no way stopping it. So suddenly, China finds itself in this ridiculous situation of, of, of Vladimir's making, and, but of Chinese, of, Chinese, of Chinese aspirations making as well, where it knows that it wants, it, ha, it needs, it feels, to support Putin. You, by the way, you can't trust G for anything one way or the other. But, but, it, but, but let's see how this shakes out. The Chinese know that they need the Russians as a counterbalance 
to us and a counterbalance to the West to the west of Russia, okay? You need that. You need a strong Russia, but you don't need a Russia so strong that it's threatening to China. And, and that seems to be the way Russia is right now. And a Russia with Putin is going to push back against the West. This is absolutely in China's best interest. But it would have worked very nicely if there had been a quick solution to Ukraine, if the, if the Russians, if, if Putin had done what he said he was going to do. Not unlike what the neocons said they were going to do in Iraq and Afghanistan. Get in, get out. Uh, well, it won't be six days, certainly not six weeks. Uh, six months, said, said Don Rumsfeld. Uh, uh, the outside, no, but it, could, it couldn't take that long. It took 20 years and nothing really accomplished. Afghanistan, Iraq, nothing. Just same old uh, Afghanistan, the old Rudyard Kipling, you know, should you find yourself wounded on Afghan's broad plains, roll on your gun and blow out your brains. That's, that's exactly where we wound up there. Uh, and Russians before us and, uh, and the British before them. But I, 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 I diverge here. I, uh, Putin didn't do what he was supposed to do. Putin completely overestimated the Russian military. There are all sorts of stories about the breakdown in communications, the demands, the, the unwillingness of certain generals to admit to what their faults were. Who the hell knows? We're, where we are is obviously not where Putin wanted to be a year after this whole ridiculous situation started. He was supposed to be glorious. He was supposed to be marching towards the, the re-establishment of the greater Russia, which is to say the old Soviet Union somehow, and we weren't supposed to notice. And again, again, depending on which silo your brain is in, uh, it's okay. He's only doing what he should be allowed to do. And besides, they want it. And yeah, there's the Minsk Accords, which no one's paying any attention to anyway. And... What the hell? Who cares? It'll all just be over in no time flat. And uh, and, and those neo-Nazis, well, you know, they will, he'll have stopped neo-Nazis. I, I don't know. Whatever the rationale was. Didn't work that way, in large measure, because the West stepped in and started throwing munitions. But the fighting has been done by the Ukrainians, and damn it, <laughs> they are unified. They don't want to be Russified. They don't want to be Russians. They're not Russians. They're Ukrainians. They want to be part and parcel of this. And we've had two countries, uh, Sweden and Finland, who would have adamantly opposed ever being part of NATO, suddenly wanting to be part of NATO. This has gone exactly the opposite of what Vladimir Putin had hoped. If he can't win, if, 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 he, well, if he can't let himself lose, but he has no way of winning... Putin has one last option. That is to basically hurl nuclear weapons. That, that's, that, is the, that is the ultimate Pyrrhic victory. It will be a losing win. And China knows that if nuclear weapons start here, this will end badly for the planet. America knows this. And everybody knows that Vladimir Putin is under tremendous pressure, much of it from himself, but certainly from internally, to basically win this thing somehow. The other option, of course, is that there's some kind of a deal. But, of course, the Ukrainians and the Americans and the West besides them are saying, 
but the deal, well, no, it's really mostly the Ukrainians saying, but the deal cannot be for Russia walking away with one iota of Ukrainian territory. That would include the Donbras and the different areas that they're currently, well, that Russia claims that, that Vladimir signed a decree saying, these are Russia, we've annexed them, and then proceeds to lose territory in them day by day. And, and Zelensky is saying, no way in hell. You're not going to ever have those. We're never going to give those over to you. We're going to take them back. Now, will that be the final position? Will there be some negotiation room in there where Vladimir can come out of this looking not great, but can say, I mean, he's going to lie, however it works, but he can, he can propagandize around the notion that we have now permanently securitized the most immediate uh, regions to Russia that, so that for all future generations, uh, ye shall be safe, etc. I have done it, and it was worth losing a few hundred thousand men and a few billion rubles over and sinking the economy and basically nearly and, and, and turning Russia into a pariah for, and don't worry, everything is going to be fine. Is there a way of getting to that? Is there any way, is there anyone out there right now looking at this, you listeners, does anyone see the pathway to a negotiated looking, a peace treaty situation? Again, the Ukrainians say absolutely not. Now that, that may just be a bargaining position. Absolutely never, 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 never. Knowing that this has to end somehow. Somehow, they can't go on indefinitely. The West certainly doesn't want this to go on indefinitely. But can Putin survive with just barely what he went in with after everything he's lost? Would the Chinese, and again, you can't trust Xi, could the Chinese say, screw it all, Maybe this is the moment when let a nuclear bomb or two fall and let the chips fall where they may. We're going to wind up here sooner or later. Could this be in their thinking? It's possible. It doesn't seem likely. But we're going to have to see something moving towards, amazingly, peace. There has to be some way of moving to a negotiated settlement. Putin cannot and will not permit, I, I say that, I can't imagine that he would permit basically being kicked out of Ukraine completely and the Ukrainians saying, we won, thank you, have a nice day. No, he, he, can't, he can't allow that. He can't allow his win to be nothing but a mirror of what he had to begin with that he claimed was intolerable in the first place after several hundred thousand deaths and all the money and everything else and the pariahship and the loss of the economic status and the loss of all the Western companies and everything else that he's gone through. He can't do that. If he falls out of the picture on his own, if he expires, okay, 
will there automatically be a, um, a, a more westernized, liberalized uh, uh, group uh, taking over? Will people who are less prone to continue this suddenly uh, you know, uh, take over the day? I mean, Russians, you know, are famous for just erasing people in pictures and people come and people go and positions shift. Is that a reasonable expectation? I don't know. I don't know that it is. I've heard many stories that, that the, the people behind Putin or next to him or next in line are just as militant or more militant than he is and see the, and see the uh, necessity of keeping this drumbeat going, but they're can also be some rational heads out there. And, and, and again, we'd, the, the, the storyline would have to shift on a dime and the Russian people would have to start getting an entirely different view of what was going on. They've had that before. Can, can anyone succeeding Putin succeed as less than as militant? Try America. Can anyone succeeding Donald Trump on the Republican side? succeed as being any less crazy than Donald. There are, there are some interesting similarities there. I'm throwing nothing but questions out about this. I don't have the answers. I do have, um, however, uh, people who, if, if, if they don't have the answers, they probably see the most efficient and perhaps the only rational pathways to a solution better than I ever could. And I'm referring to a, the, the group that I've had on the show before. We refer to them as a, a Noble Hearts Forum. Um, this Friday, we will be recording a show uh, that will include some incredibly well-informed people uh, who, whose positions will range from, you know, let the battle rage uh, to the only way out of this is by um, passive resistance or negotiation, however that might be. But the, but the, the basis for the opinions will be, I think, uh, far more cogent and, and far more informed, and I hope far more convincing than anything I could give you here as a, uh, uh, as a solo commentator. So I would strongly suggest that you listen to our Friday show, this, this coming Friday. That would be on the 24th of February, 2023. Hopefully, we will all come away from it, myself, yourselves, with a better sense of what is really going on and what is a rational way to end this conflict. A rational, reasonable, likely real-world way to stop this madness, the killing, and everything else, so that we can basically continue the planet in a non-nuclear war manner and hopefully drift back towards something a bit more rational. Maybe even in this country, who knows? We'll have to see. But that'll happen this coming Friday. In the interim, um, thanks for listening and, uh, and, and, and just 
well, let's let's call this to our preview of our Friday forum. And of course, we top it all off, as we always do, with a little jazz.
This is Richard Gazer. You know, it takes lots of time and effort and all kinds of resources to produce the kind of quality program we produce here at Center Left Radio. And it costs money to do it. Now, if we screamed a little louder or thought a little less about what we were saying, we could probably get a few advertisers to pay us to sell their products to a more tribally predictable audience. But that's not who we are or who you are. You come to Center Left Radio for non-commercial, thoughtful commentary. You're looking for an honest, progressive approach to solving America's problems, not exacerbating them. And we're committed to providing all of that. We're one of the few stations offering full-time, non-commercial, progressive programming. And we're the only station, the only one, doing it with a combination of hope, politics, and that most eloquent of all original American art forms, jazz. Think of it this way. We support your needs. Now we're asking you to support ours. Take a moment and go to our website, www.centerlefttalkradio, one word, centerlefttalkradio.com, and go to the donate page. And when you get there, give whatever you can on a one-time or maybe a recurring basis, $5, $10, $1,000, whatever you can contribute to make Center Left Radio's unique progressive voice stronger and even more significant as the full extent of the wrongdoing of Donald Trump and his associates becomes all the more evident and as we seek to hold the House Democrats accountable for the promises they made to the American people during the last election. Yeah, you know what's at stake. And I know, we all know, we can count on you. On behalf of all of us at Center Left Radio, thank you. You've been listening to Center Left Radio, the progressive voice of hope, politics, and jazz. My name is Richard Gazer, and thank you once again for being part of today's show. Try to today give you a whole bunch of different perspectives on what is happening, what has happened, where things might be going with Ukraine. The, the odd thing is most people agree, in fact, I just about everyone agrees, that the way out of this now is a peaceful one. Maybe the Russians don't see it that way. They're still talking win. But the rest of the world knows it has to be done with a peaceful thing. An odd position to be in. How do we get there? Tune in Friday.